You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. Good everybody. Buenos dias. Ni hao motherfuckers and konnichiwa bitches. I hope everybody's doing excellent out there as I'm coming at you. Thank you very much for tuning in to Abacabo Cafe. I'm your host, Jason Almi. Today, we're going to be talking about television episode eight, entitled You're Smiling, A Shutter Chance at the Beach. This episode originally aired May 25th of 1987. It was directed by Shimbayashi Minoru which is Shimbayashi's first episode. He's going to come back to direct some fun ones later on down the line. Uh, Shikaru's transformation, the Kasuga hypnotizes himself. Uh, so he comes back for some fun ones. Also, this episode was written by none other than Tadada Kenji returning after the past few weeks off. Just to bring you up to speed on Terada, Terada has written episodes one, two, three, five, and now episode eight. So Terada Kenji has written five of the first eight episodes of this show. So by far the most dominant writer. And my understanding is that uh, Terada Kenji acted as kind of the showrunner. I'm not sure that 1980s Japan had showrunners, but kind of like today where we have a writer's room, we have several writers who might do the heavy lifting on an episode, but you still have one or two people who are kind of overseeing the 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 main arc of the show. That was sort of Terada Kenji's role, uh, to my understanding, from what I can find uh, in English on the internet. So it's not a surprise that Terada Kenji has written five of the first eight episodes. Uh, not a surprise at all, and not a surprise that he is back to write this episode. And this episode begins in media rest with Kasuga with with his cryptic voiceover. So it doesn't really tell you much. It just kind of tells you that something's happening. And the and media rest is a, a common opener for Orange Road. It's used commonly throughout this series. We saw it used notably in episode five, the part-time job episode, the secret for two. This was 
the episode where uh, Shikaru calls Kasuga uh, wailing and he thinks she's going to throw herself off a bridge or something. And he goes, he goes running through town to find her. So we just start with his, his mad dash through town. This one's not quite as extreme uh, of it. And in media res, this just starts with Casca kind of referring to something happening in his voiceover that you're going to catch up on over the, the the course of the rest of this episode, at least up to about the halfway point. The whole point of starting an episode in media res is to drop the viewer immediately into a conflict. It's to hook people. Uh, all of the James Bond movies kind of start this way, right? Where Bond is off doing something cool. He's fighting somebody as soon as the movie begins. So you get to start a Bond film. You don't have to deal with any pesky exposition or, or you know, who this person is, who that person is, inciting incidents and conflicts. Who, who needs any of that crap? Let's just get straight to the explosions and people getting shot and hopefully some uh, half-dressed ladies. That's what Bond is about. So it's a common technique. It's not exclusive to Orange Road, but it is used fairly extensively here in Orange Road. And this is another episode that uh, it is used in, in Kasuga's voiceover as he's kind of returning home in the beginning. He's referring to events that we're going to see unfold. And so as he returns home, of course, Kasuga comes in on, on his father's photo shoot. And uh, this sets up the conflict for the episode, this, this, this initial event. Kasuga himself is immediately aware of the kind of sexual uh, overtones of the photo shoot occurring in his home. I mean, it's not, it's a professional photo shoot. His, his father's a professional photographer. This is not like an amateur uh, porn hub production or something like that. This is a legit of photo shoot. Um, but Costco notices immediately. I mean, it's a, there, the women are dressed in bathing suits. They're in bikinis. Costco immediately notices their body. Uh, these, these close shots of women in their bathing suits. It tells you where Costco is looking at them too. I mean, he's noticing their physicality. He's noticing the, their secondary sex characteristics, the hips, the, the, the buttocks, the, the breasts, etc. that he notices immediately. The point is, Casca noticed the women, he noticed their attire, he noticed their physiques. The, the music even gets a little sexy here, too. There it is. And it's not sexy at the beginning, but it, it gets there a little bit. Uh, there we go. There we go. So this track is called Gimon Fuwa Naisho That If you're looking for it, if you want to download it, that's what you're going to Google, okay? Gimon Fuwa Naisho That. I just call it the sexy BGM. This is the sexy background music. Yeah, you hear that? That's making love music. I mean, that is love making music. Somebody's getting pregnant to that track this weekend. I know it. I know it. Someone's getting pregnant to that track as well as should be. Orange Road is responsible for some really excellent music, some 80s bops, but also some really good stuff like Gimonfu uh, Anaisha that you can play. When you're making some food, your significant other's coming home, go ahead and put that on as soon as they step in the door. They'll appreciate it. Back to the, the inciting incident that's occurring here. Takashi relates to Kasuga that the original photographer who was hired to do the job actually shacked up with one of the models. So Takashi here is even recognizing 
that this is kind of something that happens. He says this type of thing happens too often in the biz. So he's acknowledging that uh, relationships that are inappropriate or possibly even scandalous between models and photographers does occur. And he's setting this out there. I mean, this is information that is going to become relevant later in the episode. They're not just giving this to us to to kind of create some nice background. This is stuff that's relevant to the conflict. They really drive home the point when these images of models are kind of intercut with Casca's voiceover. They're they're moving across the screen, kind of flashing across the screen for everybody to see, to drive home that that this stuff is on Casca's mind. So we get an immediate cut from um, that photo session, the professional photo session. We get an immediate cut to school the next day and Hata dumping his his stack of amateur photos out on the desk for the boys in his class to admire. So it is a it is an intentional juxtaposition to go from uh Takashi Kasuga's um very professional photo shoot to Hata's really kind of highly questionable. I mean I, I would say that Hata's photography is completely unethical. Um, I'll get to that in, in another second. But what he does, what he's doing is 100% sexual. He lacks any pretense of professionalism where uh, where Kasuga Takashi's photos are professional. They serve a purpose. These models are going to be hired for um, some kind of campaign, maybe marketing, print, um, other media. There's some professional aspects of this, right? And, and for Kasuga Takashi's part, he is a very professional photography photographer. He doesn't he doesn't make any comments or 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 uh, attempts to hook up with any of these women. So he's a very professional. Whereas Hata is is uh, the complete opposite, right? He's not professional at all. He's obviously lusting after the the subjects of his the the probably most likely unwilling subjects of his photography ninety nine point nine percent of the time. Hata and Komatsu are just fucking weirdos right now. I, I mean, they were born 20 years too early. These guys needed internet porn. If they had something to vent these, you know, if they had internet porn, if these guys had browsers, they might have been able to like vent these like uh, hormonal biological impulses and then act like normal human beings, at least when they're out in public and they're at school. I mean, these guys, they need something. Give them, give these guys something. So, the photography is obviously, I mentioned that it's unethical. It may even be illegal. They're clearly crossing boundaries regardless of culture. I mean, people don't like to be photographed without their permission. And then you're photographing young girls. Look, I don't know what the law was in 1980s Japan as far as that type of thing goes. I know what the law is in modern US, and that is you don't want to be taking weird or gross photos of underage girls that are at this junior high. You know, this is the type of thing that that gets these two characters a lot of criticism from modern day viewers of Orange Road. Whenever I have spoken with a modern day viewer of Orange Road, these two characters always come up the way that they behave and how problematic it would be in the modern context. And you can't deny that in a in a modern, particularly Western like U.S. context, it's extremely problematic behavior. But what I don't think is that I, even though these two are often, I mean, very, very often, almost exclusively utilized for uh, kind of a comedic relief, 
typically it's not a slapstick thing with them. Yusaku is usually good for some slapstick. He'll bump into something. He'll slam into something while trying to look cool. He's good. Jingoro, Jingoro is great for some physical kind of pratfall comedy. These two aren't really utilized so much for the pratfalls or the physical stuff, but they're not the, the types that like really are kind of cool either. I mean, they're meant, and in my opinion, they're meant to seem kind of pathetic to us as a viewer, to a, to a, a, a 1980s viewer in Japan. I think they were meant to seem pathetic. Definitely to today's viewer, a Western viewer, especially we're going to watch these two with the antics, with the photographs in this episode, they're going to try to get some photographs of the twins. And you're just going to think not only are these guys scumbags, but they're pathetic. There's no reason for us as viewers to root for these guys or admire these guys. And that's why I actually don't think that their inclusion in, in, in this show in general, and these type of antics are, are necessarily problematic. They would be problematic, right? If these guys were real today, but I, I don't think having them just having this exist within the show. What I mean is having them exist within the show. I don't think is a problem for the show because I don't think that the filmmakers are endorsing Komatsu and Hata's behavior I don't think that they're trying to make any statements about this behavior being okay because these guys, no matter what they do with these photographs, with trying to get, um, with trying to get closer to the twins in some perverted way, a it never works, and b it always makes them look like fools, uh, standing outside of a club waiting for everybody to show up, or like in this episode, getting mud splashed all over them. The the idea is that they're not people that we're supposed to look up to or admire. So I mentioned that in my second episode where I discuss themes and motifs. And when it comes to things like sexism, these two characters are like right up top there. So they have this moment in this episode where it's really, it's like dialed up to 11 because now we're talking about photos that, you know, maybe the subject of the photo wasn't aware that they were being taken and didn't consent. And like, this is an issue, but at the same time, these characters are kind of pathetic and they're sort of there to remind us that like, this is kind of pathetic and and maybe there are healthier ways to deal with with your own biological impulses and that you know uh consent is a good thing i mean there's a reason why kasuga during this this conversation he kind of leans away from these guys as they're as they're leering over these photographs he seems very uninterested i mean he's interested in sex there was the scene where they go to that awesome burger and they're watching the girls in the in the leotards do their um aerobics class and and kasuga is appreciative of that so it's not that he's oblivious to to his own sexual desires, but he he's at least going to reel it in enough that he's not going to like drool over photos of unwilling young girls in his school. So he kind of leans back away from the boys. He seemed not as interested in the pics, and he foreshadows that if they were to try to photograph his sisters, it would be trouble. And so, of course, they do. No one's shocked when one scene later, Kumatsu and Hata are trying to get pics of the twins. So when Casca leans back, he's sort of got his like it's like his goody two shoes role. It's again helps him kind of remain above Kumatsu and Hata. We look at them as very pathetic. We don't see Casca as being quite that pathetic because he's not so ruled by his impulses and he's not willing to step over these these um, ethical bounds. Um, at least for now, we might see in a later episode a little bit of uh, questionable Casca, but we'll. We'll deal with that when the time comes. We still have a few dozen episodes before we get to that one. Costco's flashback that he has here, as he's leaning away from the guys they are drooling over the photos, he begins having a flashback of Ayukawa being uh, nice to him, actually in 
the second episode, I believe it was, um, she, he catches up to her in the hallway and she turns around and he's expecting her to still be mad at him because she slapped him the previous day at the end of the first episode. And, and, uh, she surprised him by being kind of nice to him, kind of sweet to him. So he's having a flashback of this moment. There's this blurred lensing effect. So only the center of the screen is clear and, and, um, the, Outside edges of the screen are kind of a vignette effect, except instead of the vignette, uh, it's it's sort of like a, a blurred lensing. So it, it communicates effectively that what we're seeing on screen is is actually uh, occurring in Casca's mind. It's not something that's happening right now in the episode. It's we're we're inside Casca's brain. That's communicated effectively with the filmmaking technique, but then it's also notable that Casca is is thinking of Ayukawa and he's remembering a moment. With her at school, she's in her uniform. Um, she's covered up is what I mean by that. He's remembering her smile. He's remembering the way that they interacted. He's not sexualizing her, which contrasts with what the other boys are doing right there. And it also contrasts with the first scene where he's noticing all of these professional models. He noticed all of them and what they were wearing, how, how little they were wearing, and he noticed their physiques. But you can tell that you know he is attracted to Ayukawa, of course, but he doesn't overly sexualize her here in the same way that his classmates are uh, kind of regrettably um, really over-sexualizing the other female students that they have photographs of. And so it is kind of interesting that Ayukawa stands. She looks concerned when Yusaku calls out Kosuke and says, meet me on the roof. She she seemed aloof before this. You know, she's doing her normal thing where she's resting her her hand on her or resting her her chin on her hand, and she's looking out the window, seeming aloof. But she's actually aware of Kasuga too, because she stands right up as soon as Yusaku comes in and starts talking to Kasuga. She follows them to the roof, presumably out of concern for Kasuga. I always thought that was really kind of sweet. Like she wants to make sure he's okay. That's that's a really kind of a nice thing. The, the juxtaposition of Kasuga fearing this beatdown, he fears this impending beatdown from Yusaku versus what Yusaku actually does, which is which is like kowtow and beg Kasuga to intercede with Shikaru, I think is meant to create comedy because, you know, Kasuga is already like flinching and he doesn't see that Yusaku is, is about to beg him for a favor. Uh, but it also sets up a little bit of the the conflict too, right? Here, here we're going to learn that um, Shikaru has been approached by a photographer. She's been scouted by a photographer. And Yusaku here is begging Costco to keep her out of this show business. There's this, uh, there's this implication that um, Shikaru going into show business might be a bad thing. Costco uh, kind of understands Yusaku's implications. He remembers how readily he sexualized the models that were in his home. I mean, he saw them in bathing suits immediately. He thought of their physiques and their bodies and their sexuality. He also remembers his father saying that photographers commonly shack up with models. Of course, to drive this point home, we even get a flashback that gives us a quick recall of Takashi's line. Kasuga sees that, that line get delivered again. I think that's, you know, maybe for the folks at home who got up to use the restroom during this. Remember, people couldn't pause TV back in 1987. And that informs filmmaking technique a lot. When you go back and you watch a 30-plus-year-old television program, you've got to keep in mind there's no TiVo. Even TiVo, doesn't that make me sound old? I just said TiVo. I'm obviously old too. But what I'm trying to say is that there was no real way to pause the way we can today with digital television. You could be watching a live program 
you could still pause a live program to get up to refresh your beverage or use a restroom if you need to. So you'll see little things like this that in a modern context, it seems unnecessary because like five minutes earlier in the episode, I, I heard Takashi say that that photographers often shack up with their models. I don't need to see that again, but that happens a lot in this in this show and and other shows of this era. And it's not because they're assuming that their viewers are like ignoramuses and wouldn't otherwise otherwise notice. But what they are doing is they're repeating important points because they they want to make it as accessible as possible to someone who might have been in the kitchen grabbing a snack or something and they they missed the line. So they drive that point home by giving us a quick recall, a, a very rapid flashback of Takashi delivering that line. And Kasuga even then imagines this scene. This is a completely imagined scene where Kasuga imagines this older photographer. He's got a beard. He's got gray hair. He's obviously even older than um, Takashi. And he's kind of sweet-talking Shikaru. He's, he's kind of uh, laying on the, the lines. And it seems like maybe he's promising her the world to get her, you know, to, to go back to his house and model or something like that. I mean, you, you get the impression that this is this older guy and he's, he's using this, um, uh, facade that he's created as a photographer to lure uh, a naive and sweet and innocent Shikaru to, uh, maybe some nefarious purpose in the very next scene. We go straight from that him imagining the photographer sweet talking Shikaru to him dreaming that Shikaru has become this this huge star, this mega star. She's on stage. There's the the very high key spotlight is on her, so she's lit very brightly. She's brightly illuminated, but nothing else is. So it's like that super high key. Everything around her is black. You can't see the floor. You can't see the walls. You can't see the ceiling, and it's it's this dialogue free scene where Kasuga is running towards Shikaru. She's she's under that light, but she's also surrounded by these nondescript figures. They're rendered in these gray tones to, to uh, remove any sense of, of specificity to them. So you can't tell, are they young? Are they old? Are they, who are these people around her? You just get the idea that she's she's buffeted by all of these, these figures that are surrounding her, and she's no longer accessible to Kasuga. As he's running towards her, he's got some flowers, he's dressed in, in, in a tuxedo as if he was attending her performance, and yet he still can't get near her. He's running and running and running, and she, no matter how hard he runs, how fast he runs, she continues to recede into the background, and the uh, spotlight, that high-key spotlight, gets a little lower, a little lower, a little lower, and then Kasuga wakes up. He wakes up shouting her name. This kind of indicates her, his attachment to her in a very genuine way, which is kind of rare for this show. Honestly, he's when you watch this show back, especially if it's you're not your first viewing of of Orange Road, it's not that he dislikes Shikaru. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind. When she's around, he'll recognize how sweet and bubbly and uh, even attractive she is. She's very cute, and she's got a nice physique, and he notices this, but when she's not around, he's really not... He's not thinking about Shikaru. It's obvious that the first person on his mind is Ayukawa and that he's always thinking about Ayukawa. And so this is a notable rare dream of, of Kasuga's. It involves only Shikaru. There's no Ayukawa at all in this dream. And, and, and this dream is about a loss. It's not about like a sexual attraction or a desire for Shikaru. It's not a dream where she's like falling into his arms. A lot of his dreams involving Ayukawa 
like the um, the very opening of episode two, the lemony kiss for her, she Ayuko was like confessing her love, but then she's like falling into his arms and they're about to kiss. So it's obviously veering into this like very uh, sexual direction before Kasuga wakes up in episode two. But but this episode is really more about like it's not about um, Ishikaru's sex. It's more about him losing her. And so it's a, it's a dream about lost about her kind of being taken away from him. And so that's what he's fearing. And it's, it's really kind of funny too. Cause like he left her on the roof, staring at the sun in the last episode, he was just like, Oh look, a UFO. And then, psh, you know, like I did that. I did that shit. I'll be honest with you guys. I did that shit to my 21 month old daughter. I was trying to get something away from her. And like, obviously I can just pull it out of her hands, but then she'll start crying. But I, Legit, I was like, this isn't going to work, but let me try it anyway. I pointed at the wall. I go, what the hell is that? And my my daughter, I don't even think she knows what any of this stuff means, but she looks at the wall and I just, I grabbed the, whatever it was I was trying to get back from her, but he, he totally pulled that on Shikaru. And then in the very next episode, he's having this dream that indicates the, the type of, of grief he would feel at losing Shikaru from his life. So he may not want her. I mean, he may not feel a lot of sexual desire for her, and he may not think of her in the way that he thinks about Yukua, but this dream sequence tells you that she's important to him. She's become important to him at this point. But after the dream, he's right back to playing with Ayukua's red straw hat. Um, so it's interesting, too, that Casca is still having these interludes in these episodes where he'll he'll play with the red straw hat or he'll he'll look at it and kind of consider it. He'll think about Ayukua while he's looking at it, but he, he's going to stop doing that at some point. We get our first hint that Takashi is the photo photographer who scouted Shikaru when he says that the model needed to do Sunday due to a scheduling conflict. That scheduling conflict is called high school, everybody, but they don't, they don't beat you over the head with it. They, they still want it to be possible that the audience might not know that Takashi is the photographer who scouted Shikaru. We're going we're gonna to figure that out pretty shortly. It's also interesting that in this episode, Komatsu and Hata know all about Kasuga working at Abakabu, and it's not news to them at all in this episode either. They, they struggled so mightily in episode five to keep it a secret from Komatsu and Hata, knowing that these guys just blabbermouths. They would tell the whole school. And then by episode eight, they know. They just look at Kasuga and they say, well, you're supposed to go to work anyway. Why don't you go to work? Let us handle this. So they know about the part-time job. They know about Abacabo. And, um, and so it's interesting that, that it was such a big conflict in episode five. And, and it's like no big deal here. They know about it and it's cool. And they don't wind up telling the whole school. So here we get to the photography session. They've, they've ridden the train out to the beach. They've set up. And now they're, they're um, photographing Shikaru. I should say Takashi is photographing Shikaru and... Kasuga is holding a mirror to reflect light to to get the lighting perfect on Shikaru and make sure there's no uh, shadows over falling on um, areas of her face or something like that. While the rest of everybody else just fucks around. Everybody else is just, they, they brought the twins, they brought Hata and, and Komatsu thinking that they would help. They all fucked right off. They're, they're playing on the beach. I just get a little hung up on, on this part. And this is like, you know, middle-aged guy, Takashi, you know, we don't ever really get his age, but we're we're to understand that he's probably somewhere in his 40s or 50. He's probably not a whole lot older than that. He doesn't have any gray hair. They don't draw him too old. But he's asking this 14-year-old girl to model for him. And honestly, most of it is pretty is pretty tame. But 
you know, a 20 year old bra wouldn't work. I'm just saying like, there's a lot of 19 year olds out there and they still look fairly young, but they are at least of legal age. They're not minors. So one thing I don't know is 1980s Japan. I'm not sure if the culture is more forgiving of middle-aged dudes taking photos of 14 year old girls in bikinis. I mean, this is not a, this is kind of a skimpy bikini. And like I said, most of it is relatively tame stuff. There's just one that gets me every time I get just hooked on it. And I'm just like, that's not cool. I just don't like, that's the one that throws me off. Most of it's like, she's smiling. She's playing in the water. I don't know. You could see it as an advertisement for, um, you know, like a swimsuit campaign or something like that aimed at like teenage girls. You could see that. And that there's a place for that. I think, um, and especially with someone who's as professional as Takashi, it's fine, but, but there's that one pose where she's in the water kind of a couple inches deep and she's on all fours and she's kind of got her butt up and the animators even went so far as to add like that little touch of butt crack showing, you know, like where the bathing suits just coming down a little bit and you can see a little bit of butt crack and honestly, it'd be fine if she was 19, if she was 20, if she was 21, right? You wouldn't have it, but there's something about that that makes me feel grimy just watching it. Cause I'm like, what I, you know, somebody drew to butt crack. That's the thing about animation. I mean, if you're photographing a live action performance and you catch someone's butt crack, that's just what happened. Right. And if you don't have another take that you can substitute in for that, sometimes somebody's butt crack is going to show. And that's just like real life. Cause we all have butt cracks, right? But when you're when you're when you're animating something, every line that appears on screen, every everything that's colored or shaded or toned, that's done intentionally by a human being. And so somebody drew the butt crack. That's all I'm saying is there's a human being who thought I need to put in about an inch of Chicago butt crack on this 14 year old girl. And again, this could be like a culture thing, or it could have just been like, what's convenient for the episode. Do we really want to have to introduce Shikaru's one of her parents or guardians or something like that? And Ayukawa did come along on the, on the, the shoot with Shikaru to, to, um, ensure her safety before they knew that, that the photographer was Koska's dad. And, and we all know as a viewer, we all know that Ayukawa could handle whatever some photographer threw at her, she takes out punks all the time. So uh, a pencil neck photographer, she, she'd bust them up. No problem. But the idea is that if you're Shikaru's parents, you've got a 14 year old daughter and she's going to go off for a photo shoot. I mean, the chances are good. The parents don't know. She didn't tell her parents that's what she was doing. And still, I think to just, if you're Takashi Kasuga, you've got to do this above board you you're going to be photographing a minor. You need release forms. You need to communicate with parents and guardians. You need to make sure parents and guardians are present at all times because you need to do this completely ethically and you don't want there to be any uh, accusation of wrongdoing. So I've probably already gone on long enough about that particular scene, but it, it always, I always get hung up on that scene as just being like, it's just a little bit weird for me. It's just a little bit, that whole situation just a little bit strange especially since most of the photography that, that uh, Takashi obtains is very tame stuff. That one, that one image. And I, I feel like be, it was, it was included there for the viewer. I mean, I don't think anybody's supposed to spend 20 minutes talking about it the way I just did. I think 
that it's supposed to be like this kind of sexy shot of one of the female characters. And it's sort of like, it's there for the fans to watch, right? It's there for Jason P that's, that's who it was there for. They animated it for, for Jason P and other guys like him that like Chicago. So I always refer to that as kind of fan service. I know it's kind of tame. Um, it's kind of tame in terms of fan service, especially in terms of anime. Um, there's no tentacles involved obviously, but it's still, it's kind of put there, I think for, for the viewers who are, um, again, this show is aimed at, a, a young kind of adolescent, young teenage boy. And so we know who, we know who that shot is for moving on. Takashi has this kind of subtle, but very genuine father moment when he sends Kasuga after Ayukawa to ask Ayukawa to model as well. It was almost as if he knew Kasuga needed some excuse to bring Ayukawa back. And so it's really nice to see Takashi have these kind of real father moments because um, so so often he's this like representative of this older generation that's outdated its purposes just to be uh, the butt of jokes, right? So oftentimes Takashi's just here so that uh, Kurumi can like shred his newspaper and and terrorize him in other ways and stuff like that. But But here he's actually doing like real dad shit. He's like sends his son after this girl, hey, ask her to to, to model for us as well because he could tell his son wants to keep her around. You know, it's like a little, he's got this little sixth sense and and he helps facilitate. Um, so it's that's a nice kind of father moment. And we get this climactic moment, and this is probably one of the finest points of the episode. We get this climactic moment where Casca's finally caught up to Ayukawa. He's going to ask her to return to, to model. We get this brilliant long shot where he and Ayuko are these tiny figures. They're only a couple of inches tall, and they're shot against the sea, so you get this really kind of very bright, sunny background as Kasuga is inviting her to come back to, to, to model, and it's just this really great shot. It's a really, really awesome shot, and and here Kasuga realizes he's being a little, a little bit hypocritical. He really wants Ayuko to model, even though he was just admiring how cute Shikaru is, and... Um, there's another important shot where Ayukawa takes Kasuga by the the wrist to drag him back to the photo shoot when she finally when she finally concedes and she finally says, all right let's go back she grabs him by the wrist to drag him back and we, we this gets a special treatment again but the animators are doing something specific here when they cut in to a very tight shot of her hand gripping him by the wrist there's this this blazing white background. You can tell how how bright the sun is that day because there's nothing else on screen but their hands and and this bright 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 background. And and so they they did that on purpose. They they cut to this tight shot and somebody animated. I mean somebody drew all of this for a purpose and it was again to highlight uh their their relationship at this point and to, um, I think, maybe differentiate his relationship with Ayukawa and her modeling for the Kasugas versus Shikaru. This is also the point in the episode where my anxiety kind of peaks because Master's getting screwed again. Nobody came to help him. Kasuga was supposed to cover for Ayukawa. Kasuga doesn't show up. Ayukawa doesn't show up because Kasuga talks her into doing the modeling thing. And I think maybe part of the joke is that these kids abuse Master a little bit too. They break his shit like last episode when Ayukawa dropped the glass on purpose. They're not showing up to help him. In episode five, they were getting drunk off his booze. I'm sure they didn't pay for that. I think uh, Master's got sucker on his forehead at this point. 
And uh, I'm starting to feel bad for the guy. And that's why I legit felt anxiety building over the course of this episode. And I was like, You're, you guys are not going to go to work. You're just not going to show up. Like I was just starting to really feel anxious, but we'll forget about that. Master won't uh, give him too hard of a time. And the, the, the picture of Ayukua and Kasuga that I, that Kasuga meant to, to give to Ayukua, but he kind of goofed up and, and showed her the wrong photo that really, in my opinion, should have been the, the end of the episode. But what we get instead is this, this kind of, it's almost a little bit more cryptic shot of Ayukua, you know, the shot of her holding Kasuga's hand and they're kind of smiling at each other as Ayukua leads him back to the photo shoot. It's cute. It, it, it says these two like each other. It's nice. But then the the ending shot that we get instead, it's Ayukawa shot from behind as she's staring out this open school window. She's in her school uniform. She's obviously at school. She's looking out the window. But instead of the typical schoolyard that we would see outside the window, the landscape is from the beach. It's from yesterday's photo shoot. Are we to assume that Ayukawa is thinking of yesterday's photo shoot? We hear sounds from the beach. There's there's an audio component as well here. And she's looking out at the schoolyard, but she's really seeing the beach, and she can still hear the ocean waves, the seagulls, everything else, all the sounds of the beach. It's almost like her spirit is still there. I mean, it's still on her mind at the very least. So I think this is kind of a view into maybe um, something going on inside of her, that this is this event from yesterday is, is lingering a little bit for her. And, um, and I think that must be what they mean by putting that, that ocean landscape right outside the window. That's not really there, of course. There's a schoolyard there, but they animate it as if she's looking right out into the ocean, as if the school was built right there on the beach. And it's not. We know it's not. We've seen the schoolyard many times. We'll see it many more times over the course of this show. Um, but it's, so it's a really interesting way to communicate kind of where her head is at figuratively speaking literally her head is at school but figuratively her head is still on the beach and that's that's nice we don't see her face either so it's hard to tell what she's you know how she's remembering this what kind of emotions going with this memory we just see the back of her head and her hair blowing in the breeze and it's really just kind of a nice way to end the episode on a not not a super certain note we don't know exactly what's on her face we don't know why the stuff's on her mind. Is she irritated at Costco for showing her the wrong photo? She seemed like she was a little bit, but she sort of brushed it off pretty quickly. And so this is a really nice episode, I think. It seems to build well upon Kasuga and Ayuko's relationship with some nice moments between Kasuga and his dad as well. I missed Ushiko and Umao-san. I wish we could have seen them, but I'm sure they'll be back soon. And this episode also seems like an apology for you Shikaru fans out there for leaving her out of uh, last episode so much and punking her at the end. All righty. We've come to that part of the episode. I want to thank everybody for listening today. I really appreciate everybody. I appreciate all of the feedback that I've received from everybody. I want to hear how you're liking the podcast. So please feel free Hit me up on the socials at Abakabu Pod, A B C B P O D, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Feel free to hit me up. I want to hear your thoughts. What am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't yet. Please leave me a rating and review too. That's another great way to help me out. I appreciate it very much. I appreciate everybody who's listened. I want to invite everybody 
if you like podcasts, I hope you like podcasts, because if you don't like podcasts, I'm not even sure what you're doing here listening to these words. But if you like podcasts, please check out my other podcast. It's called Shit Happens When You Party Naked. I get to cut loose a little bit on that one. In fact, I probably cut a little too loose on that one because I recently had to move that to Patreon only. So I would very much appreciate if you guys would head over to patreon.com slash Team Almy and support Team Almy Studios on there. We bring you Shit Happens When You Party Naked. That's my other podcast. It's there on Patreon for you. There are over 100 episodes now of that podcast. Also, we're going to be coming with some bonus content for this show, and I'm going to be putting it up on the Team Almy Studios Patreon. We're going to be doing some fun um, YouTube-based commentaries for the episodes and uh we're just gonna try to have fun so please feel free to head on over there i would love it if you guys support us check out inner circle pn for some other lovely podcasts like the untrained eye simmons and more podcast the hood diner failing hollywood and the plunge podcast those are uh, our brother and sister podcasts and we love them very very much you guys can't go wrong with any of those podcasts very entertaining um hilarious podcast so please check them out i have some music for us to go out on i got another earl knight remix okay this is my man earl knight i'll put his youtube in the show notes again this week check his stuff out on on uh youtube this is earl knight's remix of madoka's saxophone i like this one i like this one i'm gonna leave you guys with this thanks again for listening <laughs>